Amen. Good morning. It is good to see all of you this morning. I want to thank you for allowing uh, me to come, and uh, and I want to thank you for honoring the Lord's Day by being here. I'm going to get this out of the way because I'm a klutz, and sometimes I will trip over things. And so, um, on behalf of uh, your brothers and sisters in the Lord at Emmanuel Church, I would like to bring you greeting, and I want to thank your elders and Pastor Dave for allowing me to come and entrusting me with this precious time to expound on the scriptures with you. Um, I cannot emphasize enough how thankful um, our church is, um, how thankful we are for Christ Press, and uh, thankful for your stance on the gospel and how you have stayed diligently preaching it and living it out in our community. And uh, we want to say thank you to you. Um, I also want to make it known right here that I love Dave and Jenny Osborne. Uh, they are precious people to me and my family, and I am so thankful for them. And so, amen. <laughs> so, um, well, then I know what I can do for, to get a reaction. Just mention Dave and Jenny. All right. And so, there we go. Um, um, I do also want to take a personal moment before we get into God's Word together to personally and pastorally thank you, Christ Prez, for understanding the need uh, for Pastor Dave and Miss Jenny to have a season of rest. Um, in a day, and particularly in Eastern North Carolina culture, um, it is refreshing to see churches finding ways to nurture the physical, mental, emotional, and yes, even the spiritual health of the ones that have been charged to shepherd over them. So I want to tell you thank you and encourage you in this. That is a worthwhile investment. I promise you it will yield a great return. Um, Pastor Dave and I meet regularly, and uh, I want to encourage you with this, that I can attest to one truth this morning, and that is that y'all have been blessed with a leadership here at this church that loves God and loves you. And please don't take that for granted. Praise the Lord for that. Well, y'all have been going through the Psalms this summer. Um, I keep up with you. I listen uh, almost weekly to your podcast um, that y'all have, and I'm thankful for that. Um, and listening to most of the messages, um, I hope I'm not contrary to anything that's been said, but also I don't want to be redundant either. And so um, there was one guy that said that um, he, he proclaimed it at seminary, um, whenever he was being encouraged on commentaries and also listening behind other pastors, he raised his hand and he said, I'm either going to be original or I'm going to be nothing. And guess what? He was both. <laughs> and so um, today I do know that, um, listen, as Vance Habner said, he said, I milk a lot of cows, but I churn my own butter. And so that's what we're going to seek to do this morning. So let me make a few comments about Psalms in general. The Psalter is beautiful, deep theologically, and is beautiful poetry. In fact, not just in the religious circles, but in the secular circles, the Psalter is re renowned for its spectacular literary value. And so today, let us not take for granted that it is a part of the canon and it is, it is a part of the church. It's also confusing at times, though, 
Because of multiple writers, unlike other books that have one writer, there are multiple writers. There's different circumstances that are going on. Our church is going through Galatians right now, so each week we remind them of context. It's easy. Paul is the writer to the church of Galatia. You don't have that with the Psalms. You have to draw context out of each psalm assigned. And so today I want to do that. Perhaps there's a little bit of mystery to the Psalms that comes with context. Well, maybe the mystery isn't the best word. Maybe it's, it's general and sometimes vague. A lot of times we don't know what's going on in the mind of the individuals. We don't know what's going on in their lives. But I can promise you this, there is value in contextually general Psalms. All right? That means even if the context is vague it still is valuable. Sometimes it's valuable because we are able to transplant our context immediately into the psalm. We identify with it when we hear it. But other times when there is some vagueness to the context, it leads to a little bit of confusion, which can happen today in our psalm. So being able to garner more clarity through Old Testament scholars and Jewish historians, that can help us very much so. Those individuals are much smarter than I am, and they can oftentimes help us. They can help us to feel when we read the words. They can help us to extract emotion from the pages and then identify with the writer's circumstances. I hope that maybe we can achieve that today for maybe the next two hours. I'm just teasing. An hour and a half will do. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Yeah, amen. (laughs) The timing of the psalm. Let me give you a little bit of background. When was Psalm Psalm 88 written? It was written during the time of the division of the kingdoms, the northern and southern kingdom of Israel, under the kingship of Rehoboam. The writer of the psalm is a man by the name of Heman, an Ezraite. And there's much mentioned about him in the book of Chronicles and even 1 Kings. Heman was serving also in the administration of King David. He served under his son as well, Solomon. And now, under his third administration, he is under the kingship of Rehoboam. And in that, there are a lot of things that are said about Heman. Now, I don't want to confuse Heman with Haman. The villain in Esther, okay? So let's make sure we don't confuse those. This is Heman. He was known as having great wisdom, according to 1 Kings chapter 4. He was a Keathite. He was among the sons of Korah, 1 Chronicles chapter 6. He had amazing musical ability and used that service for the king and for the tabernacle or for the temple. We see that in 1 Chronicles chapter 6, chapter 15, 16, 25, and even in portions of 2 Chronicles. He had many sons and daughters, and they were exceptionally talented and well-equipped for service for the king. He gave his service and his life to the king's um, authority in Israel, 1 Chronicles chapter 25. In fact... We have a personal illustration of the wisdom of Heman. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Heman was one of the elders that 
that Rehoboam set in front of him to get um, some insight from whenever the people were pressing him about the tax load that was on them. Heman was among the elders that told him that he should relinquish some of the pressure of the taxes. But those of you who have studied the Old Testament recognize that Rehoboam took the advice of the younger men. And he actually added to the burden which led to revolt and led to much unrest in that society. Let that be a lesson about Rehoboam. Time out here that it doesn't matter who your daddy is. Okay? All right? And so you must learn how to exercise wisdom in practical living. And so here, let me advise you on this. Now, Heman, as a wise old man, is writing Psalm 88. He has felt rejected by the king. For see, you'll see later in the narrative is that they were outcasts then. Rehoboam established the young men as being the ones that would give him insight and wisdom in the days ahead. Rejecting those who had stood by his, his grandfather and his dad and even under his kingship. He feels rejected. And now he is watching the kingdom that he has served for years upon years to be divided. Literally, things are falling apart all around Heman. The psalm is almost a lamentation because in this case, there's not much hope. In fact, you'll see there is no hope in this psalm. So the identity of the singer of this dark song helps us understand it. It came from a wise, talented, accomplished, and blessed man who has been rejected by the king and is watching everything crumble around him. With that in mind, let's read our text together. Psalm 88. The word of God reads, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit and in the regions of dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eyes grow dim with sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do you depart? Um, do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abanon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O oh Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. 
Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has, has swept me over. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Father, this is your word. We long to understand it more, that we may rest in your promises and glorify your name. So we need the Holy Spirit to teach it so that our minds can learn it. And we need it preached to us so that our hearts can grasp it. And we need Jesus to be seen in it. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been ticked off before? I mean, really ticked off. Like, you know, the kind of ticked off that leads you walking around in the yard fussing at the air. You ever been there before? My neighbors think I'm crazy. You laugh, but sometimes it's people like y'all. <laughs> ticked off. What brings it on? It's because you feel wronged. Something didn't go the way you had planned. I'm a planner. I like organizing things. I, I use spreadsheets like it's a video game. I thoroughly enjoy it. And when things don't go the way they should go, it ticks me off. You're nodding your head, so you're identifying with it. You can sympathize with my claim. But let me get more specific. Allow me to adjust. Have you ever been ticked off at God? Sadly, I say yes. That is confession. There have been times in my life that although I read his word, I sing praises to his name, I pastor his people, I get ticked off at God. Maybe there's a better question today. Maybe it's not have you ever been ticked off with God, but are you ticked off with God? And if that's the case, maybe it leads to another valuable inquiry. How long have you been ticked off with God? Think about it. The same things that tick us off in our day-to-day -day living often affect our attitude towards God. Psalm 88 is unique. It's definitely in the running for the saddest of all psalms. Now, I know my fellow pastor was here a few weeks ago, and he preached from Psalm 13 which is also a sad psalm. So I want you to understand, we're actually happy people. But for some reason, we couldn't get away from these texts. The theme of the psalm and perhaps the key word of the psalm can be best summed up in the word dark. It's in verse 6, verse 12, 
In verse 18, the psalm is indeed different. The concluding words aren't what you would expect. They're not what we're accustomed to when we read the psalms. Yes, we get down. We've reached despair. But most of the time, in fact, almost the entire time, you find hope at the end of a psalm. But not Psalm 88. To be sure, psalms are full of lament. They're raw. They're intense. But at least they end hopeful. Not Psalm 88. It begins with pain. He says, I cry out day and night before you. Verse 1. And then ends in pain. My companions have become darkness. Verse 18. You see, if we just take a brief survey through this text before we get to what we call at our church the main focus of the text that I want to point out to you today, we need to understand an accusation is taking place. Heman is letting God have it. He's fussing them out. How many of you ever fussed somebody out before? Okay. I fussed mama out one time. One time. (laughs) He's fussing out. And he's saying, God, you have abandoned me. Verse 5. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more. For they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit. In the regions dark and deep. He's making an accusation here. And his accusation is this. God who who has promised to Moses and to all my forefathers that you are faithful, just... And full of compassion, where are you? You have not kept your promise to me. He is feeling abandoned. He's feeling abused. Your wrath, in verse 7, lies heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with all your waves. He's feeling abused. This is an accusation. Not only, God, have you abandoned me, but God, you're the one abusing me. Do you feel the raw emotion here? This isn't your happy clappy, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Psalm. This man's angry. And he's angry to an audience of one right now. Although King Rehoboam has done him wrong. Although his friends and his acquaintances have abandoned him, the psalmist Heman here is writing and he is praying and he's praying to one. He's praying to God. You haven't kept your end of the bargain. You have abandoned me. And you are abusing me. It's to the place now with these two accusations that he causes the Pauls. Selah. It's the interlude. You know how you'll listen to a song and the instrumentation will go on for just a few measures? That's Selah. It's the catching of breath. It's allowing you to ponder on what has just been said and is preparing you for what is about to be said. 
So he is here taking a moment for himself. And he's saying, I'm accusing God of leaving me and abandoning me. I'm accusing God of abusing me. Am I right here? But he moves forward. Obviously in agreement. For another accusation is this. I feel utterly alone. Alone. This is the the time where it's emotional. It's not just anger, but there's hurt. He says in verse 8, You have caused my companions to shun me. You, who's he talking about? God, you have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. It's the accusation. He's accused God of these three things. He's aggressive. But not only does he take the form of accusing, but he begins to interrogate. In verse 10 he says, In rapid fire, like a prosecutor smelling blood with the witness on the stand about to close the case. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do do the departed rise up to praise you? So what is he doing? He's identifying with the dead and he's identifying with the departed. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave and your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Come on, God. Answer me. Question after question after question. He's accusing and he's interrogating God in form of prayer. And then he declares... There's a declaration. Verse 15. Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. What is he saying there? He's getting to the place now that he's saying, God, in all honesty, you've always treated me bad. That's the way he's getting. He's making this declaration. Isn't that how we get when we're in our season of being ticked off? It seems like it casts this negative tint on everything that has happened with that individual. The benefit of the doubt is thrown out the window. And this declaration here is saying this, From my youth up, I've been afflicted. Your wrath has swept over me. Your um, Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like flood all day long. Man, this guy is consumed in this. They close in on me together. Remember, remember who the singer is? Heman? He was a wise, talented, accomplished, and blessed man that had been rejected by a king and was watching everything around him crumble. Heman is ticked off. At God. At the beginning of the psalm, and Heman is still ticked off at the end of the psalm. I think it's safe to say that Heman is in a dark place. But where do we fit into this psalm? You may be wondering. You're like, wow, man, that guy, where does he get off doing that? Talking to God that way. Don't get too high on your pedestal. How can we possibly find anything of help in such a dark dark psalm written by a man in such a dark place? 
How do we do it? Well, quickly, because I do mean quickly. Now, what that means, I don't know, but I mean it. I want to give you three truths about dark times. I assume today that a vast majority of us are professing to be believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. And so there's three truths today that I want to um, relay to you that we see in this text that I believe can minister to you in those times of darkness. Number one. And you're going to look at these and when I say them, you're going to be like, duh. But sometimes one, one pastor said, it's not the things that I don't know that bother me. It's the things I do know and I forget. So let me give you some things that sometimes we forget and often and overlook. Number one, Christians are not immune to dark times. Verse one says this. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night. How do dark times come? Well, we still live in a fallen world. A world that, like us, is slowly being brought back to its king. But each and every day, we see the struggles, don't we? We see the ramifications of sin. We see war. We see death. We see pandemics. We see economies struggling, people losing their jobs. We still have the people right now that, that are still struggling, even in our community. They're struggling right now and wondering where they're going to lay their head tonight. I'm telling you right now that yes, God has redeemed us, and yet we are still in a world that is still dark, full of troubles, the psalmist would say over and over again. And I want you to understand today that struggles, dark times will come in your life because of oppression. This world oppresses the church. Unsaved people will oppress believers. Got bad news for you. Christians oppress Christians. It is sad. And you say, Blake, I came to sing praises to God today. I came to listen to scripture. I came because it's Psalms through the summer. And here you are, man, I mean, I need to take an antidepressant after this thing. It's coming, hopefully. Oppression outwardly. But often Christians live in dark times because of the struggle of false expectations. You say, what do you mean, Blake? Because deep down embedded in every human being, we think we're above struggles. Let's carry it further. We think that because we profess Christ and because of his radical grace, we think that automatically makes us repellent. It gives some type of repellent to us in struggles. 
You see, we have false expectations. That's what gears that thinking. That's what gears that anger when things happen in our own lives. So we need to remind ourselves today of the truth that we see even in this psalm pre-Christ. That Christians, believers, gospel-centered churches are not immune to dark times. Number two, the second truth about dark times is that Christians can live in the dark for a long time. So Blake, it's bad enough. You're saying there's oppression and you say there's false expectations. But, but now you're saying that not only can I have dark times in my life, but I may be in them for a long time? And I tell you, yes. In fact, that's what makes the Bible authentic. This is beautiful here. If you really think about it, from an apologetic standpoint, wouldn't it just be easy for God to have said, nah, we're going to keep Psalm 88 out. Or Acts, or Psalm 39. We're going to keep those out. But I love the fact here that God inspires his writers to point out that not only can believers in him and followers of God, not only can they live in dark times, but they can be in them for a long time. With no end in sight. Do you see what that means? What the impression of that is? Because here's the deal. If we go back and look at, the, at Job. I mean, is there a greater example in the Old Testament of affliction and struggle? We look at Job. What if God had told him, hey, just don't worry about it. If this is going to happen, this is going to happen. And it's really going to hurt. But there's an end. And this is what the end's going to look like. And this is what I'm going to do for you. Do you know what Job would then be tempted to endure for? Not for God. For the result. In other words, he would be living his life to serve his own well-being. To serve his own profit. And the Bible is so authentic here for us because it does not take out Job. It does not take out Psalm 88. It does not take out Psalm 39 or the struggles of the Old Testament saints or even the struggles and the downfalls of the apostles. It doesn't take those things out. It makes it more authentic. It makes it more real. To quote that great classic movie from the 80s. The Princess Bride. The masked man, when requested by the, was inquiring and chatting with the princess. She didn't, at this time, didn't recognize that it was her lover boy, okay? But they're sitting there and they're getting on each other's nerves. And she says, your life sounds so painful. And in his response to her, he says, life is pain. And anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell something. Let me tell you today, God isn't trying to sell anything. It's raw. It's intense. Christians are not immune to dark times. And Christians can go through dark times for a long time. Number three, though, the last truth that we want to see about this text is that for the Christian, it is dark times that reveal 
grace and genuine faith. Look in verse 2 with me. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Verse 13. But I, speaking of Heman, who is going through all of this, who is struggling, who is accusing, who's interrogating, who's making these declarations, he says, But I, O Lord, cry to you. There is grace there that God would allow this prayer as a witness that God understands when his children come to him, even when they don't come the right way don't miss that one commentator said this God knows how desperate men speak see we see grace here the very fact that he's allowing this prayer I have two sons we don't have time for me to go into all the stories they chose Bush Gardens over me today Okay, our church gets out a little early. They got to go. They were like, Dad, we want to go with you, but Bush Gardens. I was like, okay, I understand. I have two sons. And as much as I love them, when they get around and they start bickering, and they start complaining, and they start talking about what they don't have, or they start, and they start doing all of that, my fuse is just, I mean, I'm like, I try to be gracious, but a lot of times I'm like, cut them off, and I start rattling off all the things they do have. God, he lets him and talk. Are you thankful that you're not God? I'm thankful that I'm not God. Because this, this, we'd probably get right about halfway through the first accusation, boom, lightning bolt. <laughs> nah, I ain't listening to that. But you see, God identifies himself with us, even in the midst of our inward distrust. Jonathan Powell writes this, We can come to God like this, hurting and broken, no matter what, we can still come. We can still come because, you need to remember this, God isn't afraid of the dark. It reveals grace, but it, it also reveals genuine faith in dark times. Can I ask you a question today? We alluded to Job earlier. Is your relationship with God transactional? Meaning that I serve you because you give me things? In all actuality, if you came to God so that he could serve you, then you really didn't come to God. God will not serve you. In the midst of even those bad prayers, I know we elevate Job a lot. Job went through a lot. Job said some good things. But Job had some really bad prayers in that book. And during those times, what was God's response? Where were you when I flung the world into orbit? Do you have any idea what the mountain goat feeds on up on the hills? In the midst of all of this and all of these questions coming out from God, Job says, okay, 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 okay. But you notice Job never got an answer. 
for why it all went on. We see behind the curtain in chapter 1 of Job. Job never saw behind the curtain as much as recorded. Whenever Satan comes, the Satan comes and accuses. And by the way, he's not just accusing Job. He's actually declaring the problem with humanity, God's creation. And God says, has he considered my servant Job? Where you been? Where you been, Satan? Walking to and fro on the earth. And guess what? They're just like me. They're about themselves. Have you considered my servant Job? Oh, Job, does he, not, he, serve, does he serve you for nothing? No. You give him everything he wants. That's the accusation today. The accusation is this, and be leery of doctrines and professing gospels that tell you that God is just here to basically, he's your bellboy. No. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. And in this relationship, he is the king and we are the servant. Genuine faith. I ask you, is your relationship with God viewed as a transaction? I'll serve you, God, as long as you give me the things I want and the answers when I need them. Are your prayers still to God today? See, that was the grace. Even Heman, as hostile and as angry as he is, was still praying to God. Or has God or the idea of God in your mind died? Charles Spurgeon said this. In this psalm, Heman makes a map of his life's history. And he puts down all the dark places through which he has traveled. He mentions his sin. He mentions his sorrow. And he mentions hopes, if he has any. His fears and his woes. Now that's real praying. Laying your case before God. Conclusion. And we're wrapping it up. What about that question? No, not the accusations. Don't get lost in the emotion of Heman. But there's something the Holy Spirit allowed to be asked here that springboards us into the future. In verse 10, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the dead rise up to praise you? Jonathan Edwards' widow, Sarah, when she had received word that her husband Jonathan, possibly the greatest theologian and philosopher that America has ever produced, fact I don't know if there's any debate on that he died at the age of 54 from a smallpox inoculation one month after becoming the president of Princeton College in 1758 she picked up her pen they didn't have cell phones they couldn't text they couldn't email she picked up her pen and wrote to her daughter Esther who just so happened to have lost her husband, Aaron Burr, six months before. And Sarah wrote this to her dear child, Esther. My very dear child, what can I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod 
and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had your father so long. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what legacy my husband, your father, has left for us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. How? How? In dark times, can the believer kiss the rod? Well, because we know that there is one true, holy, and righteous triune God who created everything in this world with value and purpose. And he created man and woman with that value and purpose. But man, as we stated earlier, desired, desired to be our own authority. And rather than living in communion with him, we chose to go our own route. Thus sin entered the world. And man since then, man, woman, and child, has been plagued with the thought Answering the question, how can sinful human beings be right with a holy and righteous God? But that's why Jesus came. And as we stated, Jesus lived the life that you couldn't live. If you started right now and they reset it, you'd mess it up before you get to the parking lot. He lived the life that you couldn't live. And he died the death that you should have died. And that sacrifice was accepted. And the son in Jesus Christ was vindicated. And was risen, raised by the father. And is ascended into heaven and one day will return. To which he will make all things new. You see, that's how... Sarah Edwards and Esther kissed the rod. Because, you see, Heman was right. He was in a dark place. And God put him there. But Heman was wrong. It wasn't hopeless. Because hundreds of years later, his question would ultimately be answered. And God would answer it in a way that would blow Heman's mind. Do you, want, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the dead rise up to praise you? The answer, church, is yes. Because of Jesus. See, Jesus endured total darkness. Just go read the gospel accounts. Jesus was completely abandoned and completely abused. So you wouldn't ever have to be. R.C. Sproul said this, Those that join him in his death will participate in his resurrection. The psalm was written pre-Christ. Heman doesn't have the advantage that we have. He was waiting on a promise 
and preying on one. We read this psalm post-Christ. We have seen the promise and in faith we're waiting for the finale. And so today, we encourage Christ's prayers because when you go through dark times, and you will, and if you go through them for a long time, keep praying. And the only way you pray, that's grace. And stay encouraged by this as we close. There isn't anything that the believer will face that the resurrection will not cure. Amen, church? Let's pray together. Lord, I love you. I thank you for not giving up on me. Maybe that's why I've grown in deep affection for lamenting psalms. Because even when my words fail me, you have faithfully worked on me. And you'll have to do it again, and I have to face that fact. Thank you for the afflictions that you have used to bruise and to break in order to bring about a softening and to replace intolerance with tenderness and carnality with compassion. We understand that it means, we understand what it means to be afflicted. We, we care about those now involved in it. So as the day ends, I'm grateful that the truth does not stop, but a message lingers to encourage those who are so desperately alone and in anguish. I pray specifically for some of us right now that are ticked off, but they're still praying. I pray that you would use your truth to turn those prayers around. And for the unbeliever, may today be the day that you radically change their position from, ad from adversary to child. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, to which the church of God said, Amen. Please stand and join us. As